So <clears throat> last time I spoke, I talked about generosity. I thought I would talk about the opposite this time, which is the exploring the experience of craving and clinging. Exploring it. It's really the whole point I want to make. is not that we hate craving, not that we're afraid of it, not that we're some kind of a failure if you happen to notice it on the odd occasion arising in your mind. (laughs) But that it's actually simply another avenue of exploration to which we can bring wise attention, right attitude. It's just as much of an object of exploration and a possibility for the opening into wisdom as anything else if we meet it with right attitude. So that's kind of the the way I want to kind of uh, frame it, hopefully, inspire that in you. It's true that the Buddha talked about the experience of awakening, that he said, you know, this sublime truth has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. So that's really quite a profound and powerful statement, liberation through non-clinging. And I, I just love that way of speaking about liberation or awakening because it's not pointing to a specific state. It's like non-clinging is some static state. It's more a moment-to-moment activity of mind and heart where clinging either doesn't arise or is released. So it's a moment-to-moment experiential possibility. It's not about thinking of some state of bliss and holding on to trying to get there, right? No, that's not liberation through non-clinging. And so just liberation through non-clinging is not so mm, sexy sounding, really, you know? It doesn't really sound so exciting. In fact, it's hard to actually make up in our minds what that might feel like or look like, which is great. Because when we make up in our minds what something should feel like or look like, we're immediately caught in trying to make that happen. Duh, clinging. Forget about it. So liberation through non-clinging. So I want to talk about uh, specifically what, in my understanding, we mean in, in Buddhism by the experience of craving and clinging and what we don't mean by it and how we can explore it with satipanya, with mindfulness wisdom, right at the moment of its arising, at the moment of seeing it. Not that we have to go, you know, throw up our hands and go hide in, hide in the corner and go, it's hopeless, you know, I'm hopeless. All I'm seeing is so much craving, forget it, you know. It's only as far away, moment of non-clinging, it's only as far away as that. So, I don't want to say there's hope, because I don't think hope is particularly helpful, because that's looking into the future. But the potential is in any moment if we're willing to really explore, get interested. So clinging, of course, the moment of um, letting go of clinging, not even letting go, I don't even like that word, but the moment clinging kind of releases itself, or when our mind just kind of stops, it stops making sense, the wise intention the Buddha spoke of That's the opposite of craving, of greed, of clinging, is renunciation, which of course moves into generosity in a more active way. And in our kind of, in our culture, our regular secular culture, it's funny if you talk about wanting or craving and renunciation, it's almost as if 
without exploring, we hold backwards views of both of them. So that, you know, wanting, you know, well, of course I want this and I want that and I crave, you know, that's normal. That's where happiness lies. We can almost um, imagine or impute without looking a kind of a, a pleasure inherent in wanting, which is, of course, sick, as we know, as we look at it more here. But when we don't look, it's like it's leading us in. And renunciation is like, oh, you know, dried up old stick, uh, avoidance, aversion. It's like, you know, that's the way, that's the best you can do is renunciation, you know, some kind of penance, suffering, basically. And that's exactly the distorted perceptions the Buddha was talking about. Because it's the craving, the clinging, that in itself is the source and experience of suffering if we look at it. You don't even have to say it's going to make us suffer. It in itself is actually a state of suffering. This is my opinion, and I hope it just inspires you to just look for yourself. And the renunciation, which isn't like, oh, bad, I can't have something, push it away with aversion. Renunciation is the opening into non-clinging. It's actually an experience of great simplicity, joy, peace, release. It's a very wholesome, happy moment, renunciation. So, you know, in a way, the culture has it all backwards. And that's kind of what we've grown up with. So, um, in some of the interviews, and, and it's a question that comes up often, too, a kind of a conceptual confusion about what we mean by wanting, what we mean by craving. We say, well, if craving's bad, if clinging is a source of suffering, but what's wrong with you know, wanting to have uh, a better job, or what's wrong with wanting to take care of my family, or you know, that kind of thing, or even what's wrong with loving to be in nature? You know? And you see in those questions, the first thing is all the focus is outward on the object. What's wrong with wanting this particular object? The answer is nothing. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with the thing wanted. That's one thing. The second thing is, in English, the use of the words want or the words desire actually cover various mental states or various states of mind. And in Pali, uh, which is, you know, the language the Buddhist stuff was originally written in, the words are much more specific. So talking about really a particular state of mind. So the word that is usually translated as craving, as in the second, the second noble truth, the source of suffering, or just this craving which brings renewal of being and is accompanied by pleasure, by lust, and finding delight now here and now there. I love that description because that's how craving is. It's accompanied by pleasure and finding delight now here and now there. That's how we get seduced into thinking actually the craving is the thing that's bringing us into happiness. Well, that word that's translated craving, the word in Pali, tanha, is a very specific mental factor. The the closer translation is thirst. So when we're talking about the wanting or desire as a form of suffering in in the second noble truth, it's this quality of mind of thirst, you know, leaning into what we say comes after pleasant experience. The mind leans into it. I want it. I need it. I've got to have it. 
that quality. Uh, and clinging, is, there's a description somewhere in the suttas, I don't know, that craving, this tanha, is like a thief is entering a dark house at night and searching for an object to steal. And the clinging, upadana is the word in Pali, grasping, is like actually grabbing the thing. So when we talk about craving and clinging, craving is that thirsting, that gotta have it, leaning into it, and the grasping is holding, nah, now I got you, hold on for dear life, which leads to sense of becoming the person who has this thing or whatever, renewal of being and then suffering. So the craving, which I just read, the second noble truth, and then it goes on with the arising of craving, there's the arising of clinging. With the cessation of craving, there's the cessation of clinging. And then the Buddha talks about four areas, four big areas of clinging, just that we can explore, just so you know, one of his nice ways of breaking experience down. I'm only going to talk really about three Clinging to sense pleasures, to sensual pleasures, that's obvious, Uh, maybe. Clinging to views and opinions, which is huge. Clinging to rules and observances, which I'm not really going to talk about too much, but kind of like if there's certain things you could do, like bathing in the Ganges, that would purify all your past bad karma. So he's saying that's not really worth clinging to. So don't go bathe in the Ganges and think it's going to help. And the fourth is clinging to uh, a doctrine of self, basically clinging to Sakaya Ditti, which is, actually, is the same as view, but is personality view. Sakaya Ditti is identity view, personality view. So clinging to views and clinging to personality views. And I'll talk about, I'll talk about that more. But the, first I want to um, just elaborate a little about the attitude that hopefully, the same attitude we bring to all of our mindfulness practice. So if already, just in hearing me read this stuff about craving and clinging or the different kinds or just your mind, uh, you know, again, or if you notice any reaction of recoiling from it or a sense of, I can't ever understand it, or, you know, just any kind of reactivity like that, just notice it, that's all. But to, to have the open possibility that we can really just bring the spark of interest, investigation, to what it's like when there's craving, when there's clinging in the mind, in the heart, in our experience, what it's like when it's not. So that we can actually just get interested in to see for yourself, because that's the only way wisdom really arises, is seeing for ourselves, is it true? that craving and clinging is a source of suffering in your mind, in your heart, in your life. Just taking it, um, yeah, the Buddha says that it must be true. As we know, that might get us looking, but it doesn't really cut it in terms of freeing our heart and mind. And the, the habit, which I'll go to, of the habit, the seduction of craving, this going with pleasure now here and now there, you know, going, landing with delight now here and now there, that is so seductive and it gets so subtle that we keep getting kind of tricked by it again and again, even when we've seen for ourselves. So it's really worth exploring. And the way to explore it, as Guy, I think Guy said this, but Buddha Dasa, the Thais often talk about meeting any moment of experience with satipanya, mindfulness wisdom at the sense door. 
So mindfulness is just that bare recognition of what's happening. Wisdom is just is that attitude of mind that, that's interested without judging, without assuming, without craving or aversion. Oh, clinging feels like this. Oh, clinging again. Clinging feels like this. Yeah, clinging and I like it, so we're not going to look too closely. No, clinging feels like this. This is the whole wise attitude that is our whole practice. We can actually meet even the so-called source of suffering, craving, with mindfulness wisdom so that it simply becomes our practice of freedom. It's not like we have to get rid of it. We can bring that awareness so that we're actually practicing non-clinging in the way that in a moment we meet the experience of clinging. That's where our freedom lies, right here, right now, in how the mind and heart is meeting experience. Utejaniya, he was on, a, last time I saw him, he gets on different rants. So this was a particular rant he was on because every time I saw him this last month, he kept saying the same thing. Um, he does that. But this is a, this is a little thing. This, it's clear. He goes, so what's the difference between someone who practices and someone who doesn't? You know, and so, but someone who practices, let's see, I want to say how he says it. Someone who practices, a practitioner, meets or regards every object, every experience that happens as, what can I learn from this? Something to learn from. And he was in the middle of a very ongoing, complicated, very difficult, very painful situation about his whole life in his monastery. So he wasn't just like talking through his hat. Well, they don't have hats. He wasn't just, you know, (laughs) saying for the heck of it. (laughs) He was in the middle of a very difficult situation. He's saying, I'm really interested to see how my mind reacts to this. I'm really interested to see. He said, it's like an exam, you know, (laughs) it's an exam, these really difficult situations to see how free my mind is. And he meant it, you know. And, and he said someone who's not a practitioner, someone who's not really used to looking, then they meet or respond or react to every situation with greed or hatred or delusion or a combination. So that's really the attitude we bring, the, the interest. So when we begin to explore and continue to explore craving, the main thing is to recognize, to turn the attention around, and it's about the state, the mental state, the emotional state in the mind and heart, not about is this object worthy or appropriate to cling to or not. That's how we get completely sidetracked. Then we get into those discussions, well, but it's appropriate to take care of my family. It's appropriate. So again, back to different words. There's another word in Pali, Chanda, which is ethically neutral, which means dependent on how it's used, it can be a kusala, wholesome, skillful state of mind, or an unskillful one. So Chanda is kind of translated, I mean, there's a whole two huge pages in the English Pali Dictionary, so it's complicated, but I'm just cutting it, (laughs) cutting it. And it sort of translates as excitement, as um, willingness to do, the energy to do something. So it can be just kind of neutral, you know, there's chanda to do what you need to do. That's not the same as craving or clinging. It's in a wholesome way, it's one of the four bases of success and it's translated as zeal. 
this real energy and willingness to do together with concentration, together with virtue, to really explore. That's a wholesome quality, this zeal. Now, in an unwholesome way, the same word chanda is put together with kama, not karma, not kama, karma, (laughs) but another kama, which is uh, sense pleasures. And so then this kama chanda is translated as the excitement of sense pleasures. So guess what? That's not that's not particularly skillful or wholesome. It's actually the first hindrance is, is kama chanda. It's not just huge desire. The first of the five hindrances is actually this excitement of sense pleasures, you know, the craving that comes from that. But this word chanda, I think, can cover a lot of the times that we're thinking, but what's wrong with wanting to enjoy the beauty of nature? What's wrong with it? Nothing's wrong with it. No one's saying there's wrong with it. But the same thing that there's chanta or just a simple, you know, motivation to act, to do what needs to be done out of compassion, out of generosity, out of wisdom, the same object could also be related to in a moment with huge craving for clinging. So take dinner, take enlightenment, either one, you know. Yes, the chanta, the, the body's hungry, it's time to go eat. And you could be, there could be a sense of it could be pleasant, that's fine. It doesn't have to be thirst, it doesn't have to be craving. The body needs to eat, you know, <laughs> that's normal. But of course it could be craving, couldn't it? And in that situation, I'm, I'm imagining that you can all even call up in your mind what the difference would feel like, right? When, it, when you're really craving for the meal and when it's just hungry and time to go, right? You can get a... Yes? No, yes. <laughs> That's not too esoteric, right? Now, okay, so take the idea of enlightenment, because that's all it is, an idea in the moment. Sometimes there can be a huge craving, like a real craving, and it's like huge suffering. Believe me, I've been there, the suffering of, I really want to be enlightened. And you come and you talk about it, you say, well, what's wrong with wanting to be enlightened? That's why we're doing this whole stupid practice, you know? How can you say that that's a source of suffering? And you see, then it's not about enlightenment. It's not about following the teachings. So this is where we turn around and look at what's the state in the mind and heart right now. That's when you see the difference between chanta, between interest, between motivation and craving or clinging. So we really want to explore. And to explore, it really is to bring in this mindfulness with them, not if you're exploring already judging, oh no, I'm craving for enlightenment, so forget it. There's no way to see clearly. That's one of the the drawbacks. That's one of the um, dangers, you could say, in craving. When it's coloring the mind that's observing, we don't see clearly. I'll get to that in a minute. So, in terms of the opposite of craving, the the natural, what it transforms into, the wise intention of renunciation, again, it's not something that we need to force through aversion. Oh, I have to give up everything and renounce. Renunciation is the natural expression of wisdom. In the moment when the mindfulness, the wisdom sees through, oh, Say it's wanting enlightenment. Oh, that's craving, 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 craving. It drops away. 
got nothing to do with whether you get enlightened or not. It's just the craving drops away. And there's a renouncing. You're not renouncing enlightenment. You're renouncing. You're not even renouncing. It happens by itself. That's what's so great about wisdom. It sees through when the delusion drops, sees accurately the craving. Like the Tibetans like to say, things uh, self-liberate. The craving vanishes because it doesn't make any sense. It's just, oh, right, there's no need to crave that. And there's peace. The natural peace and ease, as Sylvia likes to quote Ajahn Amaro, that's always available. What's so poignant about craving is it hides it. If we, if we weren't caught in the craving, oh, it's just like this. Oh, but how can I hold it, right? Then it's gone. Oh, it's gone. See, it couldn't stay. It's gone. That just shows I've got to work harder. I've got to hold on to it. I've got to practice. Oh, it's just like enlightenment. I've got to just let the question go. And there's peace and ease. And then the mind goes, but that didn't solve it. I'm not enlightened. You know, and it all starts up again. <laughs> so continuing to be willing to bring in this quality of interest, of exploring, of investigation. Oh no, it's craving again. It feels like this. The Buddha often speaks in terms of um, exploring craving and the suffering and the ending of it. He talks about, as Bhikkhu Bodhi described it, three movements in an unfolding process of insight. And he talks about this a lot, and I think it's really helpful to explore it in our own experience, on retreat, off retreat. And he talks about seeing with wisdom as it really is, the gratification in clinging to sense pleasures, views, sakaya ditti, the gratification in clinging, the danger in the clinging, and the escape from the suffering. Not to hold this as a, as a, a view or an opinion, but to really look, because it makes a lot of sense. He says, if monks, there were no gratification in the world. He's talking about sense pleasures at this point. If there were no gratification in the world, beings would not become enamored with the world. But because there is gratification, beings become enamored. If there were no danger in the world, beings would not become disenchanted with the world, would not suffer. But because there is danger, beings become disenchanted with it. If there were no escape from this suffering, beings could not escape. But as there is an escape, beings can escape. I mean, it sounds obvious, but I've actually, it's really, I think, quite a useful template for exploring our experience. Especially when we start talking about Often we talk about in terms of clinging to sense pleasures, and we tend to jump right away to the danger of sense pleasures, which the Buddha talked about endlessly. And it kind of skips over the fact that, of course, there is gratification. And if we haven't really acknowledged to ourselves, really feel a gratification, then when we start looking at the dangers, we somehow don't completely buy it. We don't completely sink in because, but, but, but it is nice. It is lovely to have chocolate ice cream, unless you're allergic to chocolate and you don't like ice cream, and then you can have soy, coconut, or whatever, you know. <laughs> it is lovely to go out in nature and appreciate it. It is, you know, there's, I don't have to enumerate the sense pleasures. You all know it well enough. 
including, you know, pleasant states of mind, including all the wonderful things in life. The Buddha's not saying that stuff doesn't bring pleasure. It does. It gratifies us. And so part of bringing mindfulness, wisdom in, really exploring, is to start right there with the gratification. See how and why the clinging starts, because it feels good. You know, we've talked about it. It feels good on that very basic level. So being willing not to jump over, no, it shouldn't feel good, you know, we're afraid to feel good, because then we'll get caught in clinging. You can't skip that piece. It's really just seeing as it is, the gratification. Yeah, it feels good. The danger, the escape. So, the gratification I will leave you to explore by yourself. I'm sure you can figure out how to do that. Uh, The danger is, again, I'm saying this stuff so it's conceptual, but in your experience, not. Don't bring in some idea of danger. Yeah, it's bad, it's going to go away, so therefore I shouldn't enjoy it. That doesn't help. That's a view. That's an idea. That's a description. Talking about just moment-to-moment bare attention to just what happens. What happens as you're really uh, enjoying the gratification of something. And there's different, you know, one of the dangers, the one that's always mentioned, is, of course, the one we've talked about before, that nothing lasts. So there's gratification. It's lovely. It goes away. Now, if the mind is completely free and at ease, there won't be clinging around the gratification when it goes away. That's not a problem. So the danger is just to the clinging, to the suffering mind. When there's no clinging, change isn't the problem. So that's one danger, though, that we tend to rely on feeling good. And when we don't feel good, as we know, maybe we at least have a little hissy fit, if not worse. But I actually, now this is me now, what I'm saying is I think for myself, what I see is really more of a danger, more subtle, more broad, more comprehensive, is the addictive delusory aspect of craving when it's not seen in the mind. That it colors the moment of awareness. And just what I was saying about when I read the, um, the definition of the second noble truth, Craving, coming together with, with pleasure, delighting in this, delighting in that. That the, without just noticing craving, wanting as it is, it, it bears the promise, you know, that it's going to be the avenue to happiness, right? And then we tend to, as I say, we focus outward on the object desired and go, well, that one didn't do it. So we think, okay, I'll renounce this or I'll renounce that. But that seduction of the wanting, of that being the path to leading us onward, is to me one of the delusory aspects that leads into the addictive quality of it. And the other thing it does is, the Tibetans have a lovely phrase, kind of how it colors our perception. They have a phrase that, that, that wanting, clinging, puts feathers on the object that's desired. You know, it kind of colors it up. So, you know, when you really have this desire for something, doesn't that thing or person or job or what just seems so wonderful? How many kind of expectations and fantasies have you had about some future thing since you've been here? 
Yeah. And not even way, f- yeah, not even way far future. It could just be lunch, right? Or it could just be how nice it's going to be to take a bath at a certain time. And if you've really got into how pleasant, a pleasant fantasy, you may have had unpleasant ones too, or just with the pleasant. If you really get into it, and then you get to do the thing, does it really, really, does the thing at all come up to the promise of the fantasy? You probably keep looking, right, until you find one that does, but <laughs> keep looking, don't believe me. But I know now when my mind starts fading, oh, it'll be like this, and then it'll be like that, and then this will be so wonderful, and 25 different ways, and now I know whatever way my mind makes up, it's going to be other than that. It never, ever comes out the way my mind's made it up, although that's another thing. But that sense of the desire itself makes the object or the experience desired look so incredibly wonderful. Even deep meditative experiences. You know, you're waiting for piti to arise, rapture to arise, and then it starts and it's on and on and on and finally it's like, please, God, make it stop. You know? And that may sound like I'm making that, but not really. Everything gets old by repetition, and so you need something new if we're under that promise of clinging making us happy. And even more what it does, the delusion, because craving and aversion are only arising in a moment of mind and heart when there's delusion. talked a little about delusion today. Delusion always goes with craving or aversion, which are like two sides of the same thing. Aversion is like not wanting something to be happening. Because there's the the delusion of me. Without me, there's not anything to crave, right? Or you reverse it to. And also the, the delusion that it'll make me happy. So the real kind of poignancy, I think, of craving is that what I said before, it actually hides the peace, the ease, the freedom that the heart and mind is really looking for, although maybe it doesn't know it. Huang Po was it. This pure mind shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. The one mind is the Buddha, and there's no distinction between Buddhas and ordinary beings, except (laughs) that ordinary beings are attached to forms and thus seek for Buddhahood outside of themselves. By this very seeking, they lose it. So even take it away from Buddhahood, just non-clinging. Just a moment of freedom, of ease, of peace. We really do look for it outside of ourselves, don't we? To people, to objects, to experiences, to a different mental state, to anything. And by that very seeking, by that very, even very subtle leaning into something else, it hides the natural peace and ease. And so to me, that is the real danger of clinging. It promises us exactly what it cannot deliver, because in its own essence, in a way, the essence of the mental state is that it hides peace. And so the escape, momentary escape, what I love about the fact that experience is just, you know, just this moment opening up, just this moment opening up, is that whatever this moment's like now, it's opening up now. And so there's always, always the potential to be totally caught in craving, or anything, I'm just craving, and then in this moment, oh, craving's like this. Always that potential. It doesn't have to be 
10 years from now or when you've cultivated a certain level of absorption. It's just that recognition, oh, cravings like this. So the escape in a moment, not the escape of the arhat is so thoroughly seen through the seduction of craving that it just stops arising because it doesn't make sense. But we can know moments of that. And how do we know it doesn't make sense? By when we notice clinging. And this is what's great. Experiment with on retreat. And you start going, I shouldn't want this, or I'm not going to look around, or I shouldn't go eat. Yeah, not, not feeding the craving is helpful. But it's not like a friend of mine decided to really practice restraining at the sense doors on retreat, so he walked around blindfolded, you know, for three days. That's not really exactly seeing through the dangers of craving. So when it arises, and you recognize it, just never mind what the craving's about. Never mind. It doesn't matter. Turn the attention back around. See, oh, craving feels like this. Notice how you even know it's there in the mind, in the body. Notice what effect it has on your mind, on your perceptions, on your choices, on how you feel about things. Just really explore it. And sometimes you can just... Walking meditation, sitting meditation, eating meditation, working meditation, you can just really watch it arise, get so strong. It's so strong, you know, it's telling you, if you don't have this, you'll die. And some people have brought this up. It's like, it can be as simple a thing as wanting to look at the person walking next to you, right? Have you felt that so strong you want to look? Like, you, you just can't not do it, right? For what? So you can judge, right, basically. So you can look at them and have a judgment. That's, well, it was really good. I'm glad I did that. But, but the, the wanting, though, right, it's killer. So it's understandable to see why we're driven by it. So explore it. Wanting, wanting, I'm going to explode. Wanting, and just stand there with it and watch it. At some point, it ebbs. I'm not saying how long, but at some point, it ebbs. At some point, it really goes away. Notice it's really gone. Sure, another one's going to come because that's the nature of the habits of our mind. But we can really see, oh yeah, this is really interesting. What does it do? And one of the things it does that I've noticed besides putting feathers on the object and making the thing look so, if I just look at that person, everything's going to be so much better. (laughs) You know, it doesn't make sense, but never mind. I just, if we just had, I don't know, some certain thing for lunch, you know, then you have it, you don't even like it, you're not even hungry that day, but never mind. But another thing it does is really narrow. It really constricts the mind so that what we see is the object desire and everything else is in the way sometimes. So again, it engenders a displeasure, a discontent with the perfection of now, with now at all. Now isn't good enough. And, you know, can, uh, this ex- example I've used often because it's, it's funny and it's easy to see. I was once sitting on a plane. I travel a lot. And it was an overnight flight to Europe. And uh, so I was sitting on, like, on the aisle in two seats empty next to me. I can't sleep on these, on these flights where you sit up all night. And I'm a wreck when I don't sleep. So I was waiting. People are getting on, getting on. And it was getting close to the end, and I noticed no one was in the two seats next to me. So that was just a perception. I just noticed that. And immediately, oh, the thought, maybe I'll get to lie down. And with that thought, I really saw this incredible clinging for a craving to lie down and then clinging to the idea. 
And then I was like, before I had just been sitting and watching people come in, and from that moment, everyone who came through the door of the front, you know, I was looking at them, I was like feeling, you know, not hatred, but definitely aversion, get back to them. Then they'd go past me, oh, may you be happy. Then the next one, and this is true. And actually, I noticed, I actually really don't remember what happened. You know, I probably didn't get to light. I really don't remember. But watching what the craving did to my mind, the effect it had on my experience, on the people, on how I related to everything in my experience. There's no question that it's suffering, much more suffering than lying down or not. That may be debatable. You have to explore that for yourself. So. So... Ajahn Chah says, Ka Moga, a flood of sensuality. We're sunk in sights, in sounds, in smells, in tastes, in bodily sensations. And we're sunk because we look only at externals. We don't look inwardly. So our whole practice is this learning to look inwardly, not to judge, not to try and make it different, but to understand, to get interested, to explore, to see how it works. And the, the more Shankara, who was a 7th century Indian Advaita, one of the main um, philosophers of Advaita Vedanta, he said, and it's really true, he said, craving is intensified when we let our thoughts and our attention dwell upon sense objects and to seek temporary satisfaction in the objective world. The Buddha says the same thing. He says what feeds unwise attention, that feeds the growth of the hindrance of sense desire is to keep focusing our attention, and this is why it's unwise attention, to keep focusing our attention on the gratification, on how good it feels, basically, of the sense pleasure. So just a a simple, well, like my thing with the airplane seats. As long as I can, oh, that would be so nice to lie down, then immediately, no, 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 you can't, you know, every person who came in was the enemy. Yeah, it really would be nice to lie down, you know, then. But if you don't focus on that, you had that thought, it would be nice to lie down, but you just withdraw your attention from focusing on that. It doesn't feed the sense desire. It doesn't mean you can't lie down if you have the option. It doesn't mean you can't go choose what you like to eat. But we don't have to keep focusing. That would be so nice. This tastes so good. Let me have more. So explore. That's what the Buddha calls unwise attention. It feeds it. And this is really this habits of unwise attention is what, and we can just see this in our present moment experience, is what has fed and so deeply made these deep ruts of aversion to the unpleasant, of clinging to the pleasant, and uh, just spacing out delusion with the neutral. So I think someone has some of this, but this sutta on the two darts has so much really profound stuff in it. So he, you know, he's talking about how if you're hit with, as if you're hit with a dart, an unpleasant feeling, uh, an awakened person is just hit with a dart, it's unpleasant feeling. An unawakened person beats and screams and yells and laments and adds a second unpleasant feeling, basically mental distress to the physical. But then he goes on from that. So having been touched by an uninstructed, ordinary whirling, having been touched by that painful feeling, resists it and resents it. 
So then in one who resists and resents a painful feeling, can you relate to that at all? Um, the underlying tendency, the habit of resistance of the painful comes to underlie the mind. So it becomes a habit. And under the impact of that painful feeling and the habit to resist it, the person proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. Why? Because an untaught worldling does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sense happiness. I think that's really quite profound to explore in ourselves. So when there's an unpleasant feeling, we go for sense happiness because that's all an uninstructed person knows. So then the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feelings comes to underlie the mind. Does not know, according to facts, the arising and ending of these feelings. I'm not saying they're bad, just knowing that the pleasant feelings arise and end. Does not know, according to facts, the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these feelings. So in one who lacks that knowledge, the underlying tendency to ignorance as to neutral feelings also comes to underlie the mind. I've just found that in my own exploring so useful. Just to see, and again, not with judging. All of this to explore is really to see how the mind works, how these habits get fed, how they get starved, and do they really, do we really experience suffering, disconnection, confusion as a result of them? And if we're judging them or ourselves, there's no way to see clearly. So to look in, in just simple ways, the body hurts and the mind goes into a pleasant fantasy. Right there. Painful feeling, let's check out. Let's you know, go take a beach vacation. You're home, you go to the refrigerator. You go have a cup of tea. You go make a phone call. No one's saying any of those things are bad. See how mind, our mind goes, oh, well, it's bad. You shouldn't do it. I should renounce. That's just aversion. Explore. Explore. You know, you go and get the bite of ice cream. I must want ice cream tonight. It keeps coming up. Well, how, you know, you start with one bite and you end up eating the whole carton of Haagen-Dazs because, you know, when you finish that bite, then the body hurts again. So you have to have another bite and the body hurts again. So you have to eat the whole carton. Then your stomach really hurts and you can't eat anymore. So there's something else to do. So just explore. Is that true sometimes? In the face of the unpleasant, the mind, the uneducated mind knows of no other escape than to go for the pleasant. So what we're saying is turn around and look. There is an escape that isn't about going for the pleasant. And it's just bringing clear attention. Oh, wanting is like this. Desire is like this. Burning, 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 burning. Oh, okay, now it's gone. Then notice, ah, the peace and ease. Really, you know, when we get what we want, there's that sense of relaxation, the peace and ease. But we mistakenly think it's because we got what we wanted but it's because the wanting went away. It's a lot easier not to have to run around. My brother has a hound dog that has such a finely developed sense of smell. The poor thing, he's just driven by his nose, driven by it. You know, he comes in the house, any piece of food, anything that's ever touched a human body, he can't, he's just, they have to hide the garbage, they have to hide everything, because he just can't stay away from it, you know? It's, it's painful to watch, sweet dog. 
That's what it's like. <laughs> you just can't stop, you know? Sense pleasures. Well, I don't have so much time for views and Sakaya Dutti. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> attachment to views and then Sakaya Dutti as personality view. View is really a formation of thought. And on one level, it's pretty obvious. We can, we can sort of say a, a political view. It doesn't take a rocket scientist first to see a view of this, this certain political idea or view is right or better. That one's not right. It's wrong. I mean, my God, the last year. It was inescapable in this country, you know. Look how much vehemence, how much anger, how much hatred, really, goes into the supporting of one's view and the attacking of the other view. So, right, this is not subtle or esoteric. It's really easy to see. Do you get, I don't, I mean, we're all different in terms of politics, but I know many people in this country, including myself, who I knew it was a view, but I was sincerely and deeply attached to my view as being right. That's attachment to a view as a description of how things are, what it means to me, what's right. We all have views about many, many things. That's not a problem. The attachment, as it's described, is thinking this alone is right, is true, everything else is false. But of course, it doesn't quite you know, present itself that way. We just think this is how it is. So in terms of obvious views, philosophical views, religious views, political views, views of your family, Views of how other people should behave. Views of what's appropriate behavior in your partner. Views of who's right and who's wrong, you know? There's still views, but you can sense how much suffering there is when there's attachment, when there's holding to a view as absolutely this is right. So that's on the big, obvious picture. But views form out of thoughts based on perception, and not even getting to personality view, but just subtle views of what's happening right now. Views of the solidity of the body. Views of what causes suffering or not. Views of, I'll just give a very simple example. A friend of mine, because it's, it's a good example of perception, the construction that our thoughts make of it, clinging to right away to that construction as being true, and then all the thoughts and reactions and suffering that come from that. She was sitting on a retreat in a rented big retreat facility in Switzerland many years ago in an old creaky wooden house. And they had, she said this retreat, I think it was with Ajahn Sumedho, said so on the second floor was the big room that was their meditation hall, and on the, on the big room right below it was the walking hall. And it was one of these houses with no insulation and you could hear everything that went on. So they were sitting in a sitting period, and she said she was getting very concentrated very quiet, just with the breath, you know, in and out, one of those really peaceful, now it's going really well. (laughs) When someone started doing walking downstairs, and it was just, oh, this creak, creak, creak. You know how we're so into, no, God forbid, there should be a sound when we're meditating. And so, also this is Switzerland, so it was like, in the sitting period, you sit. In the walking period, you walk. You don't walk in the sitting period, you know? I mean, my Swiss friends would be okay if I said this, right? <laughs> and so um, she was getting really, they're ruining my concentration, and they shouldn't be doing it. It's really clear what you should do. Okay, but 
to in, out, in, out. And she'd go, she's getting more and more angry and distressed, back in, out. Finally, she just, okay, I'm just gonna be really present with my breath. So she really zoomed in on it. And then she kind of widened her field of awareness and realized that she was sitting, leaning against the wall. And every time she took a breath in, her back went against the wall and it made a creak. And that was the sound she was hearing. So you get a sense, there's perception. We think we know what it is. We make up a whole story. We then have moods and emotions that go with that in the sense of me and really get quite distressed. (laughs) Now in that case, clear seeing, the whole thing dissolves. The anger, you know, she could have made up a whole nother one about how stupid I am. I don't know, she didn't say that. But the whole thing dissolves with accurate perception. But that's how views are formed. From a perception, a thought about it, not recognizing that thought, another thought, a mood that goes with the thought, then selective perception. We just notice the perceptions that fit the view that's been formed. And it just goes on from there. So I just want to drop this in. In terms of if you notice self-judging ever coming up in your sittings or your walkings, first noticing it, that's helpful. I would say almost always there's some view operating in the background that is feeding the judging. The judging is comparing something to something, right? And whatever you're comparing, it isn't good enough or you wouldn't be judging. So there might be a view of what good practice is or how the breath should be or I shouldn't be clinging or my life should be you know, more about service or whatever. So you might just notice it's so often there's views like operating in the background that we're not even recognizing. This is one place where awareness of thoughts can be really useful. I'm not saying think about it, analyze it, go, go to your room and write 17 pages about what your views are of you know, proper sitting. But just have a sense of when the self-judging comes, you might just notice one or two of the thoughts that feed it. Oh, you know, I'm just spacing out. I'm not with the breath as much as I used to be. That's a sign right there. There's a view. How often one should be with the breath, how the breath should feel, a comparison to the past, and selective perception. Because how many times have we said, it doesn't matter how much with your breath, but the mind doesn't remember that. The mind remembers the discussion about absorption and never moving from the breath. All the other ones it doesn't remember. Because that's selective perception. That's attachment to view get a sense of what I mean. This is happening all the time. We don't have to hate views, just like we don't hate clinging. When we see them, we don't have to cling to them. Oh yeah, there's that view, that it should be like this. The mind opens up, but also there's other times when they say practice just, there's so many different things arising and you're just noticing that, oh yeah. But they said if you should notice it every single second and I'm spacing out, so that can't be right. Just notice the views when there's judging. And in terms of Sakaya Ditti, Ditti again just means view. Sakaya Ditti means personality view. It operates in exactly the same way as the perception of my friend, the perception of the sound, the interpretation that somebody's walking, the aversion to that, the view that everyone should follow the schedule, the view that this is spoiling my meditation, the sense that it's unpleasant and not recognizing that. 
Well, there's a whole sense of herself in that. But Sakaya Ditti is basically that picking up of any particular perception. You know, as we sit, as we walk, as we go through the day, as we've said, it's just a whole flow of nama rupa, of the six sense doors, right? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, or emotions. I mean, if you really look, that's all that's happening over and over and over and over. Sometimes people say, is this all? Yeah, actually. Seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, sensing, thinking, over and over, that's what's happening. Once I went into Upandita, who's a very kind of tough teacher, I don't actually remember what I said. That's noting. That's a noting practice. You just note everything that's arising. So I'm just noting seeing, hearing, thinking, touching, seeing, hearing, you know. And I must have been complaining. And I remember he just looked at me. And he, he used to, he was really good at busting me. I kind of liked it. He goes, so what do you want? Other objects to note? Because <laughs> that's all that's going to happen. You can change these objects for those objects. <laughs> it, really, it really doesn't matter. So... Sometimes people have mentioned here, it feels like they're in the flow. Things are just going and just noticing, yeah, that feels great. Why does it feel great? Either because it's pleasant and you're attached to it and not noticing it and it's delusion. That's one way it feels great. When it changes in your suffering, then you'll know that's why that felt great. Or because things are just coming and going and there's no clinging in the mind. There's no making up a story. There's no making a sense of self. It's just how things are. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. No, 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 going, going. That's all. From the time we're born till the time we die. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You know, over and over and over. When there's no clinging, it's no problem. <laughs> Suddenly, though, it's a problem, right? So Sakaya Ditti Ulakana, Sakaya Ulakana described it as Sakaya. His 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 description. Sakaya just means this stream of experience. And when at one moment any particular perception, any particular experience is suddenly grasped, it's as if the mind suddenly goes, this one is me or mine. Right then there's the sense of personality identity, personality view. This is me or mine. I mean, unfortunately, the mind doesn't usually say it quite that clearly, does it? It's like, oh my God, this pain is unbearable. So right then, something's become me or mine. And we, we can't always tell exactly, is it the pain? Is it the unpleasant feeling? Is it the thought, this is you know, going to lead me to the hospital? Is it the aversion? So sometimes we can't, because all that stuff happens so quickly, so all together. But right there, you can feel that contraction, that glitch, that ball of twine of Sakaya Ditti, personality view. Right, So we can explore it. Just notice when it's there and when it's not. And any sense impression grasped can lead to the whole arising of the sense of self, the sense of personality, just like that. If you explore it with interest, it's really fun and funny and pathetic. And <laughs> then it goes away, you know? So, like, you know, you can be walking and there's just a memory comes. How many memories just come and go with this one? Oh, you know, some memory of embarrassment in the third grade, you know, like Sally was reading that thing, you know, where people were putting all their most embarrassing high school memories on. I, I don't get that, right? So, and anyway, so a memory comes <laughs> of how embarrassing some horrible thing you did in the third grade, and there's clinging to it, you know, and that sense of shame goes over you. Oh, God, you know, and then right away, 
all the other memories that contribute to proving that that's really true. Suddenly you're just doing walking meditation and you should say, I'm not even walking right. People are probably looking at me and you know, you, you know how you teeter a little bit, you lose your balance, you think, oh God, you know, they're all seeing me, I can't even do walking meditation right. And, right, all of that. Just from a memory that was grasped. Whole sense of self coming and going in a moment, right? This goes on, as I'm sure you know, all day long. But what we don't, if we don't look, we keep thinking it's the same sense of self, but it's not. It's coming different ones. First, there's that embarrassing one in the third grade. Then there's the one who went to lunch and ate too much, and now their stomach hurts, and you know, you're like, oh, God, I'm such, you know, I'm just pathetic, and I don't know, I can never control myself. There's that one. Then there's the one who goes and has a pretty quiet sitting and says, even though I was tired, I came and sat. I have a lot of virya. I have a lot of faith. I had a lot of it. It's really going well, you know, and then you remember all the times it went well. That's another one. And then there's the bored one walking out. And then there's the really calm one. And then there's the one who feels old and the one who feels young and the one who feels, it's endless. It's endless. But they're all different. So Ajahn Buddha Das is saying, you know, the self is merely a condition that arises when there's grasping or clinging in the mind. It's just a little big ball of gunk in the mind. It comes and it goes. You can just look at it. Come, look at it, go. What's the big deal? We hate it. That's one big deal. The other thing is we don't see it, and we're back like that hound dog, running after pleasant, running away from unpleasant, trying to gratify the sense of me. Or we're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, trying to have a better sense of me. Fine. Use your meditation to have a better sense of me. You know, that's what we do in the beginning, because that's all we know. If I could get concentrated, I can feel better about myself. If I can really have some insights, I can go out of here and astonish everyone with how open and compassionate I am. I was waiting for 20 years for everyone to get astonished, but now I gave it up. (laughs) It's a lot easier when you give it up. That's the freedom. (laughs) I used to just really want to understand, and now I don't anymore. And that's the freedom. The Buddha talks about agitation through clinging. Explore and see if that's true. Agitation through clinging. We're just sitting here minding our own business. A thought arises, a pleasant sensation arises, a memory arises, a sound arises. There's a thought who's clinging to it. The whole sense of me right there. Agitation. Ajahn Sumedho says, you know, we're constantly creating our sense of self by thinking about it all the time. He says, and you can't create a peaceful self. Explore and see. But, as whatever arises, dissolves. So that's why it's actually fun, just exploring. Attachment to view. See it clearly. Oh, that's releasing. Sense of self. Sometimes you can see what it's about, sometimes not. Just, oh, Sakaya Ditti is like this. I do that a lot in my daily life. I can feel and suddenly grip this. What is it? Is it aversion? Is it clinging? What am I clinging to? I can, oh, Sakaya Ditti. It's like this. The personality, feeling of shame or whatever. It's like this. Not pushing it away, but just stepping into the awareness, stepping out of the, the constricted mind of clinging into the 
unrestricted mind, as the Buddha says, of non-clinging. So non-clinging, even to sense the self, it doesn't have to go away. You just sense the self is like this. Clinging is like this. That really, just for a moment, there's taste of what the Buddha was talking about, the liberation through non-clinging. Just a taste. Luckily for us, just that little taste of the Dhamma is enough you know, to really spark the trust, the faith, to keep us looking. One of my teachers said, a spark of truth is enough to burn up a mountain of lies. It's true. Because when we touch it, we know, oh, that really is the peace and ease that's accessible. Even we forget it, we know we forget it, we're caught in our stories and all of that, it's always, oh, it's like this. Sakaya Ditti, that's always potential. I just want to end with a short reading from Master Shen Yen, who just died a couple of weeks ago. He was a really wonderful, wonderful Chan master from Taiwan. I sat a couple of times with him. He was really a lovely guy. He says, one does not practice to become enlightened, but when it happens, it's like waking from a dream. True liberation does not come from wanting to be liberated. In true liberation, there's nothing to want, nothing to discard, no place to go, and no place to avoid. Now, this is Adi Ashanti. Those who are free don't want anything. They don't want anything from their mind. They don't want anything from their emotions. They don't want anything from anyone, and they don't want anything from life. They don't want anything. If you don't want, all that's left is an incredible sense of being free. Not wanting is not the same as aversion. Not wanting is freedom. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.